0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about speaking truth to power. concept of speaking truth to power has been on my mind a lot lately, in part because of conversations that are going on in the work side of my life. I mentioned in the first year of inappropriate conversations that I feel like for most people, a healthy kind of a balance to their life is a three-way thing, not a two-way thing. I, I'm not sure I like the expression work-life balance because it misses that third thing. Now for me, that third thing is work, family life, And church is the third item. But for other people, that third item could be as simple as hunting and fishing or being part of a civic organization like the Rotary Club. I don't want to make an advocacy position on what that third thing ought to be, but there ought to be something other than just work and family in the equation of work-life balance. But for me, on the work side of that equation, candor has come up quite a bit as a topic lately. Now, from a definition perspective... It's simply called the quality of being open and honest in expression, frankness. I like the list of synonyms, though. In addition to frankness, there's openness, honesty, candidness, truthfulness, sincerity, forthrightness, directness, plain-spokenness, or just telling it like it is. Bluntness is one of the other ones, and it's been interesting at work to talk about whether or not People in authority are actually asking for people to be blunt with them. In other words, this concept of speaking truth to power could be people in power letting me and others know that we're about to hear some hard truths. Or it could well and truly be a a two-way street. I saw a quote while doing a little bit of reading to prepare for this concept of speaking truth to power. From a Santa Clara University posting, an article posted there, it included this quote early on from Herbert Agar, uh, under the heading A Time for Greatness, published in 1942, says this, The truth which makes men free is, for the most part, the truth which men prefer not to hear. When Jesus is talking about the truth will set you free, I think he was speaking in the Gospels about hard work, not easy work, and I could cite a few examples here and there. ...about this concept, if I do it right in this kind of introducing this idea of speaking truth to power, I might come along and speak to it from the perspective of what in the newspaper business we called the ombudsman role. But we'll see if I go in the newspaper direction, or maybe more over in the record store direction. First, though, I think I want to look at current events, and I I always preview some discussion of current events by saying that I don't like talking about current events, or that I don't really do it all that often. But maybe as inappropriate conversations evolves over time, and I the mix of, of old, tried-and-true topics, things that I've written and set aside for a later date, begin to get used more, and I become more uh, looking more toward other ideas and future ideas, maybe current events are going to creep in a little bit more than they did in the past. And there really is no current event, to my mind, that speaks to this idea of speaking truth to power that's more relevant than what happened just a couple of weeks ago in the early part of June in McKinney, Texas. From time to time, Dan Carlin and other people who deal with current events more often than I do will make this statement that I don't know when someone's going to listen to this show. If somebody was listening to this particular Inappropriate Conversations podcast in June of 2015, I'd need say no more than the name of the city, McKinney, Texas, and recent controversies, or even recent controversies regarding undue use of force by police, and the images would immediately come to mind. But I don't know whether or not this is the kind of thing that's going to linger, and maybe someone comes along to this particular topic, maybe because of the different drummer, and doesn't really have the context for it. So I'll provide a little bit, and I'll start it off by saying that on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page... Just a week or so ago, I referred to a 15-year-old boy living in that general area as a hero. And I think I can still stand by it. Uh, looking at a news article posted by, a, I believe, a TV station in the Dallas area, the uh, CW33.com article, this is the News Fix website for, again, probably a television station. Dateline McKinney, Texas, says this, Brandon Brooks The 15-year-old boy who shot the McKinney School Party video that's being broadcast around the world is telling his side of the story to Newsfix. Quote, The cops showed up, and then the parents immediately started yelling, You need more cops! There's too many of them! And most of the kids weren't even involved, Brooks explained. It was a fight between a mom and a girl, which had nothing to do with all the other kids that she apparently needed more cops for. That's when Brooks says the officer, identified as Corporal Eric Casebolt, arrived on the scene and flipped out. Quote, he trips and drops his flashlight, he's going crazy, putting people in handcuffs, tackling people, slinging them on the ground, Brooks said. So why wasn't Brooks, 15-year-old boy, on the scene, theoretically one of the kids, one of the many kids that there were too many of in the minds of one of the women who live in the neighborhood, one of the adult women who live in the neighborhood, why wasn't he handcuffed too? Brooks answers that question. I was one of the only white people in the area when that was happening. You can see in part of the video where he tells us to sit down, and he kind of skips over me and tells my all my African-American friends to go sit down. And that's when things got really scary for the teen behind the lens as he watched his 14-year-old friend being thrown to the ground. Quote, I think she was quote-unquote running her mouth, and she has freedom of speech, and that was very uncalled for for him to throw her to the ground. When he pulled his gun, my heart dropped. As soon as he pulled his gun, I thought, he is going to shoot that kid. That was very scary. For those who don't remember, Eric Casebolt being called to the scene of a party that perhaps had more people coming than the uh, facility was ready for, or at least that the neighbors were ready for. And instead of doing what I might do in a situation where I was concerned that something was out of control, even if the parents in that neighborhood, and that a section of McKinney, Texas, really believed that a riot was about to break out and the people were in danger, I might have called 911, related a uh, conscription of like a disturbing the peace scene or scenario, and stayed inside, shut my door, let the police do their thing. I certainly wouldn't have been the middle-aged woman walking across the street to a teenage girl and slapping her in the face for having the audacity to schedule this party and inviting a lot of those people into the pool area of my neighborhood. And of course, that slap in the face, by all accounts, triggered some hair pulling and some screaming. And that's the, quote, fight, unquote, that broke out that led police to show up to the scene. And all the actions on the video, this girl, that this 14-year-old girl that is described by the uh, Brooks kid, who he filmed being kind pulled by the hair, wrestled to the ground, shoved face first into the grass... And then essentially kneeled upon, uh, restrained in a very physical way, had nothing to do with the situation. She didn't disperse when she was initially told to, and then when she did try to walk away, she was pulled back as if she shouldn't have been walking away. She didn't organize the party. These weren't her friends that were invited by her. She was one of the invitees, uh, you might say. So she and she hadn't necessarily been anybody who'd created a disturbance. She wasn't part of the fight just in the wrong place at the wrong time with the police officer who by the testimony of his own police chief was out of control this interview that the chief did with the media uh, after the officer casebolt um, tendered his resignation perhaps an indication his apology certainly seems to be an indication that casebolt also recognized that he was out of control and it's consistent with brooks telling of the story of him videotaping that the officer clearly had a blind spot. Either a blind spot toward Brooks, perhaps because of race, perhaps not. Certainly did not seem to understand that he was being filmed or understand the consequences of being filmed. But I'll use this kid as an example of someone who had the courage to speak truth to power. Because I think that's actually kind of what was going on here, is someone who was willing to say, this is wrong, I'm going to call it wrong, I'm going to document it as wrong, and I'm not afraid about who sees it or who knows it. And that's a very important point. In an article that I read, written by Brittany Cooper on Salon.com, she includes this quite obvious observation. She says this, We don't have to be polite to police officers. Incivility is not a crime. And yet, by all accounts, it appears that Casebolt was responding to either the incivility or the lack of deference on the part of this 14-year-old girl who not only treated her as a criminal, but treated her as a violent criminal as a result. No charges were filed against most of the people at this party. There was a charge for disorderly conduct filed against, I think, the 18-year-old that the police pointed his gun at, who ran off. um, That 18-year-old teenager trying to intervene to protect the 14-year-old girl was viewed as an act of aggression, of interfering with police business. He was arrested. It'll be very interesting to see if those charges hold up. I think in light of the fact that the video's out there and that the chief of police of McKinney, Texas, has acknowledged that this police officer was out of control, you might see the actions of the police in this part of Texas be to uh, simply walk away from this problem as quickly as they can, and dropping charges would do that. But it means that no charges were filed against anybody, certainly at this point against anybody else. Nobody else was arrested, and I'm not sure the charges against this one kid will hold up. And thankfully for Brooks, the 15-year-old who shot the video, no charges were filed against him. Of course, why would there be? He didn't violate any laws. You're allowed to videotape the police. But he's also perhaps lucky that he wasn't the victim of police violence himself. At some point, if police officers continue to be caught on video abusing their power, Even if they consistently get away with it. But right now there's a case in North Charleston, South Carolina, where a police officer was videotaped murdering somebody, shooting him several times in the back, and planting evidence, dropping a taser on the victim to allege that there was some sort of uh, self-defense case to be made. I'm not sure how the forensics on that would have held up. I'm certain that forensics on that would not have held up if this had been two common citizens, but far too often when a police officer is involved in an act of violence, exceeding their authority, committing, well, murders, the charges against this South Carolina police officer, the evidence doesn't seem much to matter. The burden of truth for convicting a police officer is much, much higher. And if there's no one there to tell their side of the story because the person on the receiving end of the police overreach is dead, it becomes even harder, but... That Somebody in South Carolina shot that video surreptitiously. In this case, wasn't standing right there where the police officer could have seen him, but shot the video well enough and clearly enough that it was obvious what was going on. Will police officers begin to course-correct their behavior, or will we begin to see police officers lashing out violently and perhaps even illegally against people who happen to have a phone? And whether they're shooting video with their phone or not, appear to be shooting video with their phone. I don't think we've seen the last twist in this tale of the way American police work is done. I've been a consistent voice on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page, suggesting that it's not being done appropriately, or at the very least, we can do better. And I, from time to time, meet with resistance. A great deal of the resistance that I meet comes from the part of the country where I grew up. So sometimes speaking truth to power isn't speaking truth to those in authority. It's not telling the boss's boss something that he or she needs to hear. Sometimes it's speaking to your peer group. And when I was growing up in high school, I I think I usually, I, I could be credited with doing a good job of speaking truth to that group of peers. I've delivered hard, unwanted, and unwelcome information to peers before, including those a year or two older and those a year or two younger. But right now, I'm shying away from doing it, because I don't like the incivility of picking a fight with people. And as wrong as it feels, and as wrong as it probably is, to allow people with either racist or quasi-racist views to continue holding those points of view unchallenged, I guess my sense of it is that there's a time and place for everything, and like it or not, this may not be the time and the place for that fight. So I'm putting my opinions on political issues, this political issue in particular, on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page, and I'm by and large leaving them off the Walk the Earth Facebook page, and I'm certainly leaving them off my own personal page. The exception to this is Twitter, because I'm at IC underscore Greg on Twitter, and therefore everything that I post that's of interest to me, whether I'm You know, live tweeting something I'm seeing on television or watching watching a sporting event, taking a picture before or during the game, or talking about issues. It's all me. There isn't an alternative account in that that way of doing it. And in that respect, I think it makes this 15-year-old from Texas more brave than I'm being, certainly more forthright than I'm being. And simply by shooting that videotape and posting it online... He had done a much better job of demonstrating the quality of candor. He was being forthright. He was telling it like it is. And to go on television in a TV interview where it's his face and his voice speaking, contrast that to some of the parents who have made unsubstantiated claims about rampant drug abuse and other sort of crimes being committed by these teenagers. And I say unsubstantiated for the simple reason that there is no substantiation for those claims. You've got, by all accounts, a dozen McKinney, Texas police officers in that neighborhood, surrounding that pool party, and no arrests are made for drug abuse. No arrests are made for weapons. No arrests are made for fighting, which is actually the one crime that was committed. I would love to see the police take the time to track down the middle-aged woman who saw fit to walk up in, in an unannounced sort of a way, um, smack a teenage girl upside the face and ultimately start the fight that started all the nonsense that was later captured on the video by Brooks. No. So these are unsubstantiated claims and these unsubstantiated claims when adults from the neighborhood are appearing on video, they're agreeing to an interview. If you don't show my face or if you pixelate me or just show my hands or just use my voice with a blank screen, the kid said, no, I got nothing to hide. Having nothing to hide is candor, and sharing this video with the world, unquestionably speaking truth to power. So that's what I mean when I talk about this concept of speaking truth to power, and if I didn't have a much, much better different drummer today, I'd have to consider whether or not Brooks would have been a candidate, although a teenager from Texas that I don't know and have never met and don't know anything else about other than this unfolding story where we might not have heard everything that needs to be heard just yet, the danger of recording a podcast with a current event in it where the topic is bigger than just the current event, I suppose. So I don't have to worry about him being a different drummer. But I do want to talk a little about my own personal experience because my personal experience is a mixed bag. One of the quotes that I've heard that I think ties into this idea was on the Men and Blazers podcast, an interview released after this event in McKinney, Texas, but before today, so between, with... Former NBA center, uh, Australian basketball player Luke Longley, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not looking at at a copy of any transcript, but it said something about the notion that it's the things which aren't said that do far more damage. He was asked for like an insight, a life lesson that, that could be taken away from his experience in both Australia and America as a basketball player or as a parent. And he said, it's the things you don't say that do the most damage. This is so consistent with one of the principal views of inappropriate conversations over the years. And I suppose Walk the Earth as well. It's, it's me. It's my view. This idea that it's far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. That it may not be ideal to speak out of turn and say the incorrect thing, but you can apologize when you speak up and get something wrong in a way you just can't. When something needed to be said and you didn't say it, And the consequences that could have been avoided by speaking up happen. And what do you do? It's sort of a twisted, I told you so, to come back later and say, you know, I saw that coming, I just didn't say anything about it. Well, it's the things we don't say that do the most damage. Although, from time to time, the things we say or the things we write cause damage and need to be corrected. And when I think about the concept of ombudsman, I think about it from the perspective of of newspaper work, I suppose, because that's my experience. I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done before, and that's hit two dictionary definitions in the same episode of Inappropriate Conversations. It's not like this is an episode of The Definitive Word for Crying Out Loud, a show on Simply Syndicated from back in the day that's well worth tracking down for people who are interested in taking it all that simplysyndicated.com has to offer. That's one of the perks of being a, a subscriber- to simply everything, is the archives of the definitive word. But no, here's another definition. Ombudsman is a person, such as a government official or an employee, who investigates complaints and tries to deal with problems fairly. That's sort of the short definition. A more full definition would be like a government official appointed to receive and investigate complaints made by individuals against abuses or capricious acts of public officials a secondary definition is one that investigates reports on and helps settle complaints. For for me the ombudsman was somebody who reported directly to the publisher bypassing the entire editorial process at the newspaper and would deal with issues where there were complaints about unfair reporting. The ombudsman would have a column that in my experience didn't necessarily appear on the editorial page, the place that I've seen it In addition to editorial or commentary pages, is what we might call page three. Now, page three is not a place where you would typically find editorial content. In the newspapers that I work for, the primary sort of, and this everyone knows with, oh, it's page one, and page one above the fold is where the big story goes. And probably page one below the fold is the second most important part of any given newspaper. That whole, uh, the cult of page one, for want of a better word. But when you pull that page open, in a traditional newspaper, whether full sheet or tabloid, page three is usually what your eye is drawn to next. Now, there are two kinds of people in the world, I've been told from my studies, especially when it comes to magazines. There's people who read front to back and people who read back to front. So there are people if you notice like a lot of the news weekly magazines in their heyday time, for example, or Newsweek, you'd find a column from a well-known and venerated columnist tend to be on the first page after you pull back that back cover, essentially the back cover version of page three, as a matter of fact. But most of the time, people read front to back, and when you pull that page across and you're, you're done with page one, you're typically staring straight ahead at page three. Page three, in other words, is better real estate than the back of the first page, you know, page two. And once in my life, I've seen page three used for editorial content And it was so inappropriate that it led me to write and push that newspaper to do something about the problem and preferably to do it from the perspective of the ombudsman. Because if the editor was making a mistake, the editor-in-chief was making a mistake, or if his managing editor or news editors had made poor decisions, or if the writer uh, or the uh, reporter had engaged in some sort of editorial misconduct, if allegations of journalistic incompetence or you know other sort of malfeasance was going on, you'd want that independent party, somebody who was reporting directly to the publisher, to get involved and offer an opinion that might often be extremely critical of the newspaper. And it's that ombudsman role that I think will lead to the one example I can think of where I've done a really good job of speaking truth to power, because it was a situation where I knew better from my own experience, limited as it was at that early stage in my career, and I was willing to speak up about it. This is one of those situations and inappropriate conversations where I don't know if I've told the story before, so if I'm repeating part of it, or even all of it, I apologize. When I worked initially as a copy editor, uh, I was a copy editor for one of the many, many Gannett News Service newspapers in the country. My job was primarily to come in in the middle of the afternoon and uh, make sure that the weather map was ready to publish and I would be responsible for uh, creating a digest out of various wire stories, so one, two, three paragraphs at the most, covering the kinds of stories that we wouldn't give a full article to uh, from the Associated Press, typically, although there might have been more than one wire. Among my other responsibilities was editing the Dear Abby and Landers type of columns. Now, you may ask yourself, what kind of editing goes on? Aren't you essentially putting whatever the question and... Dear Abby's answer would be right in, the, the vice column approach. But you did have certain responsibilities. On occasion, you'd have a responsibility to try to make the column fit in the appropriate space. And there was not a set uh, length for those columns, nor was there necessarily a set reserved amount of space. So sometimes you'd be coming up with ways to uh, mess with the layout and design and stretch the copy a little bit, which always looks bad in my opinion. But often as not what you'd need to do. would be to find a way to remove the paragraph, or to tighten up some of the sentences such that that article would appear in the right amount of space. The other thing you're doing, though, is reading it for content. I lived in a Midwestern city that had three major hospitals. One of the hospitals was uh, osteopathic in nature, one was Roman Catholic-owned or operated, and one was private. And the description of this city was such that if you were to write a letter to Dear Abby or Ann Landers, complaining about this city and its three hospitals and one of them was laying off nurses and you were working double shifts as a nurse and you shared a parking lot with a catholic hospital it would not be that hard for you to figure out that this writer without using the name of the city you lived in without frankly intending to identify the city had just done so that a nurse who's complaining about working 18-hour days Uh, On end And um, having trouble getting the help she needs to provide the standard of patient care she's accustomed to providing might not be talented enough as a writer to avoid positively identifying the city she lives in and therefore the hospital she works for, even if she was actually in her own way trying not to. It's not like she started off her entry into this letter saying, hey, dear Abby, I live here in this city and I work for this hospital. As a writer, this nurse actually made some effort to try to not do that. And yet, clumsy copy editing, in my opinion, allowed the few turns of phrase to stay inside the article, stay inside the, the original question being asked in that advice column that did identify the city. And it, it turned out to be kind of a big deal because what this nurse was doing was raising allegations of unethical employment practices, of uh, undue risks taken with patient care, she even related a story after one of these you know multiple days in a row of you know three four weeks in a row of working these 18 hour shifts with no days off no time off of fearing that she might fall asleep behind the the wheel and being worried that if a kid or somebody had run in front of her her uh, fatigue would give her insufficient reflexes and she might actually be a danger if not to uh, others at least to herself and she was basically calling for help asking how can I get the administration of this hospital, which is privately owned, to hire some of the nurses that were laid off from the other hospital to provide the necessary relief so that I can have at least one day off a week, or at least have one day where I'm only working an eight-hour shift instead of, instead of this more-than-a-double pattern that she was on? I mentioned that this is all going to lead to a page-three editorial because not a day after this advice column ran... Where the you know, Dear Abby was sympathetic to the nurse's situation and offered some strategies on how to deal with, well, speaking truth to power. Power came down on this woman and came down on this woman hard. The newspaper, the only daily newspaper in this small Midwestern city, ran a page three editorial of fairly significant length. I'm going off memory here, and I'm going off, you know, decades of memory. But it seems to me, from a perspective of nearly 30 years into the future, that this was something like a 20-inch article. Now, I don't know how to make sense of that to somebody who isn't really kind of familiar with the terminology of newspapers, but this would have been two or three times the length of an editorial and long, uh, on the long end of of a column, a commentary column, and it wasn't with the rest of the editorials on the editorial page. It was on page three. Banner headline, the kind of spot you might expect to have the recap of what the city council decided in last night's meeting. Unless what they decided was so controversial to be page one news. But a routine city council meeting, um, almost every zoning council meeting, would be like here in this spot, the local news on page three, big headline. But that big headline in this case was devoted to a campaign to root out this evil nurse and fire her. She's confessed to having a poor standard of patient care. Her ability to do her job is eroding. She had the audacity to call out her bosses and her bosses' bosses in a national column where she had to have known she'd be identifying our fair city and embarrassing and humiliating us on a national stage. She even suggested that there was a chance she might run down a kid one day. She's a blight on our our city. She's a threat to the health of our citizens. She needs to be identified, rooted out, and fired. Surely somebody who works in the city's only privately owned hospital knows who she is and can solve this problem once and for all. I was very confused by that. It's not that I was taking sides in the story. I could sympathize with what the nurse was saying when I was working in newspapers, as a matter of fact. I had worked some of those 50-day-in-a-row type stretches with no time off. I had worked my fair share of 16-plus-hour shifts, including shifts that started in second shift and ended in third shift. I understood the kind of fatigue she was describing, but I wasn't taking any sides. What I couldn't understand, though, was why the newspaper was... It didn't make sense to me that this would be the place where they would draw a line and try to solve a problem. If anything, the newspaper had themselves to blame for a poor job of copy editing, leaving in the things which identified the city and creating the problem in the first place. If the problem was that this city and this hospital were being embarrassed by an employee, it was the job of the copy editor to make sure that didn't happen. Now, I knew this firsthand because I had only moved to this particular city six months or so earlier. It hadn't been that long that I'd lived there because my wife got a better job and I moved with her. In fact, what she was making in her first job after graduation was significantly more money than I was making. It was a raise of 40% of our collective family income if even if I never found a job. So I didn't hesitate to say, well, let's pick up and move with your job because What we were earning collectively when I had a job and she was finishing school was now going to be bigger with her job and me seeking work. And I figured newspaper work isn't going to be that hard for me to find. I did send in a resume all those months earlier to this newspaper with clips and examples of things I'd done as a copy editor, stories that I'd edited, editorial columns that I'd written. Um, I might have even included some captions and headlines. Something to basically say, I've got some experience as a copy editor. This is something I enjoy doing. I'd love to do it with you guys. But didn't get a call back. Didn't really get that interview. And I figured, well, you know, your clips as a copy editor are not going to carry the same weight as your clips as a reporter. My best bet was that the things that I'd written from an editorial and commentary perspective would catch their eye. But that didn't happen either. I was dealing primarily with uh, editorials related to what might be more gen- you know, generally social issues. We'll see if one day I, I kind of share, because uh, I probably do have a clip somewhere, of the editorial I wrote about the controversy over the last temptation of Christ, which didn't come to the city that I lived in, but I nevertheless wrote about it because it was a controversy, for whatever reason, in the city that I lived in. But now moving from that very small town to a much larger town in a different state, I was feeling a little bit out of sorts because, you know, I perhaps had still an interest in being an active participant in the process of journalism and couldn't stand the fact that I hadn't picked up permanent work yet and was doing freelance type things and uh, working for a weekly newspaper and also had worked that Christmas in a local bookstore trying to piece together combinations of jobs to try to figure out what my next move was. I just hated to see the practice of journalism being practiced so incredibly badly when I knew I wasn't playing an active role, at least not that kind of role. So I spoke truth to power. I wrote a letter to the editor, raising all kinds of questions and reflecting some of the research that I did because I had time on my hands and I had a mystery that I did not understand. From a time on my hands perspective, I enjoy writing. I enjoy researching and writing, and therefore it wasn't that big of a deal for me to put together a relatively small, a normal-sized letter to the editor. And from a research perspective, I was still working for a weekly newspaper. It's not like I didn't have access to, to materials. And what I found when trying to solve the mystery of why would the newspaper care this much about this issue was that the family that owned the local newspaper had a member on the board of directors of that private hospital. In fact, I think perhaps a brother, certainly a direct blood relative of the editor-in-chief of this newspaper, where there was sort of a family connection. So it appeared that whether at the publisher level or the editor level, this was personal. This nurse had said some things which made his brother look bad, and therefore the newspaper struck back. And didn't strike back in the way that you might expect with, you know, a six-inch editorial on the editorial page, even the top editorial, No, they struck back with a column and that column was put on page three with a big headline. So I questioned their ethics and integrity. Asked why at the very least in the process of writing that column they didn't call out the obvious inference that there's a conflict of interest or at least a a potential conflict of interest here. If you're going to try to throw the nurse under the bus, at the very least disclose your relationship with members of the board of that particular privately held hospital. And That editorial, as you might imagine, that letter to the editor, went nowhere. One of the lessons here is that sometimes you can speak truth to power and no one's going to listen. And later on, I'll talk a little bit about sometimes you can speak truth to power by not saying anything at all. There's a time to keep quiet. And the Brandon Brooks kit is perhaps an example of maybe speaking truth to power by doing really not much more than taking action. He wasn't speaking to the police officer when he was videotaping. He was simply doing what I would consider to be the brave and perhaps wise thing by cutting that video in the first place. Videotaping in this case proved to be a good idea in and of itself. Well, that's not the rest of the story. The rest of the story is that a week or so later, longer than it would take for you to decide to reject a letter to the editor, there's lots of reasons why a letter to the editor might get rejected. I believe it was Inappropriate Conversations 10, talking about even the concept of how to to have an inappropriate conversation and still keep your family safe. I shared a letter to the editor that I wrote to the newspaper in the city I lived in at that time, different city, that didn't get published because I wrote it anonymously. I used a pen name and in the process of submitting the letter was very straightforward and honest about using the pen name. And that newspaper had a policy that they would refuse to publish anything that wasn't the name of the person who wrote it. I totally get that policy. It makes sense to me. But I told him on the phone when I well, I told her on the phone when I talked to the assistant editorial editor that I wasn't going to put my family at risk, that I was writing a criticism of people that I believed were very dangerous and would certainly strike back if somebody called them out publicly for things that they were doing wrong, for playing a role, perhaps, in helping to um, let a murderer get away with murder, or an attempted murder in that case. Get away with murder. So I understand the idea of writing a letter to the editor and having that letter to the editor land straight in the trash can. And this had been a long enough time that if that decision had been made to trash the story, not go forward with it, not let it be part of the letter's page, it would have happened by then. But I got a phone call. And it was a phone call that really surprised me. Out of the blue, an editor, maybe a news editor, I'm not sure, called me up and offered me a reporting job at that newspaper. I didn't really know what to make of it. At no point had they seen clips or read stories from me where I had performed any duties as a reporter. They'd seen editorial writing. They'd, again, seen examples of copy editing, like captions, headlines, that sort of thing. But I don't believe that there's any way, if they had, unless they'd gone all the way back to maybe my college newspaper days, this is pre-internet. It would not have been that easy for a newspaper to track down something that I'd done in the middle of my college experience. Because later in my college experience, my roles were more editorial. I was the entertainment editor. I was the managing editor. I didn't have that many bylines the last couple of years of college, even in the college newspaper, even for somebody with a journalism degree. So it seemed to me that the offer of a job to work as a regular reporter was suspicious in and of its face. So I asked the obvious question what would I be doing? What would the offer be? How do you know my work? And they offered me a job covering the local hospitals as a medical beat reporter. To me, that was kind of the red flag. So I told, I asked for a name and number and told them that I would call back and I needed to take a little time to consider it in part because I was just about to go down this line of a new venture. I was about to work in the record stores. I needed to consider this Management offer that I had with record stores versus this newspaper offer that seemed too good to be true, and perhaps, like all things that seem too good to be true, probably was. Nerd Hurdles, where every week Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid, but you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simply syndicated.com. So I called them back and called them back, frankly, the same day that I accepted that position. In fact, I think the conversation happened in the office of the record store where I accepted a position and was ready to come back later that day or the day that week for my first official day on the job as the new manager trainee of that store. And when I talked to the person who called me and declined the offer, they seemed to be very disappointed and confused. I took that as a positive, but I also said, that among the other things that I was concerned about was, at first, it just didn't seem right for me to take that kind of offer from them, sort of sight unseen. That no matter what their confidence was, they didn't know enough about me, and I certainly didn't know enough about them. And if that settled the matter with them, I was a little concerned about one other matter that they might be able to help me with. I had submitted a letter to the editor several days earlier, more than a week earlier, and was curious as to why it hadn't run yet. It was dealing with the controversy over that nurse from the hospital and the page three editorial that the newspaper wrote about it. I got a long kind of awkward pause, and then I'll put you on hold and see what I can do. I was on hold for what seemed to be an inordinately long period of time. And somebody on the other side picked up the phone, introducing himself as a person. I wasn't being farmed off to the assistant editorial letter. I was being farmed upward towards somebody who was in charge. He told me that he wasn't sure he knew what I meant, that they get so many letters, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Added some disappointment that I wasn't interested in joining the staff. And I still wasn't getting where I wanted. So I told him, with some degree of honesty, it wasn't like I was necessarily, he could have called my bluff, I wasn't necessarily going to go here. But I told him that I'd written the article about this question of medical ethics. And even though it was more of a journalism ombudsman type question, where I kind of expected the ombudsman to weigh in on it, um, you could make an argument that it was a question about uh, medical ethics. Certainly, there was a patient care issue that was being raised in the original uh, advice column letter that the uh, Dear Abby or Ann Landers, whoever, responded to. And I said, if you're not going to run this letter to the editor in your newspaper, which I you know totally understand, it's your newspaper. My brother is the editor, one of the editors of a of a health law journal in California. And although this story hasn't really gone as national as that page three editorial implied that it had, it may be that I should take that page three editorial at its face and go ahead and put my reply out there on a national level, on a journal that's read by lawyers who are involved in the healthcare industry nationwide. I was put on pause again, and when the pause came back, there was a shuffling of papers. And I couldn't tell whether the shuffling of papers was legit or whether it was that sort of Rush Limbaugh talk radio type of shuffling of papers, theatrical shuffling of papers. But I was told, you know what? Hey, surprise, surprise, we'd misplaced your letter and now we've found it. And I do believe we can probably run this. I thank you for calling that to our attention of what was otherwise a conversation about a job opportunity. Person hung up, a couple days later, the letter ran. Now, I'm not going to overstep What I know here. So wrap the next things I'm going to say around a couple layers of the word allegedly. But it seems to me that the disingenuous manner of handling that particular letter, the inability to find it, and then suddenly the miraculous ability to find it, then offer to work in the medical side of beat journalism. um, When I'd written an article about an editorial that was inappropriately dealing with questions of medical ethics, all those things lead me to believe that if nothing else, Maybe the offer of a job was a way of making sure that I shut up about this controversy. I don't know. It seems odd to say you gave up a job opportunity and the ability to continue to working in journalism the way you saw fit for that one moment. But it seemed to me that it was a matter of the truth setting me free. At that point, I was no longer worried about whether or not I was going to have a career as a reporter. I'd sort of said no to it in an unintentionally theatrical way. So you can speak truth to power by writing a letter, by shooting some video, by having a direct conversation, and sometimes you can speak truth to power by knowing that the time is right to not say anything at all. And that might be the time to set the stage for our different drummer. Because one of the quotes that I really liked that I saw in the recent weeks, kind of dealing with, maybe in this case, was dealing with Pride Month and some of the other things that are kind of swirling around there, because it's June, and uh, Christian Pyatt, a Christian author, included this quote in an article that he wrote for patheos.com just a few days ago. This was a June 10th article. The one I saw, the uh, posting of it I saw, the headline, LGBTQ Pride Month, What Do We Do When The Bible Is Ignorant? Now, it seems provocative, right? But I think what Pyatt was saying is when there are truths that have not been discovered which cast new light on what the Bible says, that's ignorance in the sense of being not yet fully aware, and there's no doubt, that 2,000 years ago, there were a lot of things about medicine, about psychology, about the planets that the writers of letters, like Paul's letters, just didn't have. Here's the quote from Pyatt. Galileo was labeled a heretic in the 1600s for suggesting that the Earth revolved around the Sun, and there are still those who deny the overwhelming science pointing to the age of the planet." As a general rule, important new knowledge presents a compelling opportunity for new thought. Christian Pyatt. My different drummer today, though, is not Pyatt. My different drummer is Galileo Galilei. Note here that I'm going to use Galileo. Galileo as another opportunity to talk about speaking truth to power, and in this case, perhaps the other side of the coin. What happens when power wins, or at least seems to win? But first, quick biographical information. Galileo was born in 1564, died in 1642. Wikipedia identifies him as being an Italian astronomer, physicist, engineer, philosopher, and mathematician, who played a major role in the scientific revolution during the Renaissance. He is widely heralded as one of the greatest scientists of all time. His achievements include improvements to the telescope and consequent astronomical observations and support for Copernicism, which was the notion that the Earth didn't—the Earth really wasn't the center of the universe. The Earth actually revolved around the sun. Galileo's advocacy of heliocentrism was controversial within his lifetime, when most philosophers and astronomers still subscribed to the view that the Earth was standing motionless in the center of the universe. So, that's sort of an introduction to Galileo, and the sad thing is that with so many other different drummers, there's no way I'm going to spend the time to do him justice in terms of his impact on science. That seems like a huge sweeping statement, but I don't believe that it's unnecessarily grandiose, his impact on science. Some suggest... The Galileo might actually be the person responsible for the scientific method as we have it today. For me, he is certainly an example of silence and the prudence of not speaking from time to time, where there may be other ways to speak. There may be other ways to speak through writing, including not the direct confrontational letter to the editor style writing, but writing to set down an accurate account when you've been imprisoned for the rest of your life, in an attempt to silence you. Going back to the Wikipedia article on Galileo, under the heading, Controversy Over Heliocentrism, because this I find to be completely fascinating. I'm going to read it at length, in in fact, I think it's, it's that valuable. In the Catholic world, prior to Galileo's conflict with the Church, the majority of educated people subscribed to Aristotelian geocentric view that the Earth was the center of the universe and that all heavenly bodies revolved around the earth, despite the use of Copernican theories to reform the calendar in 1582. So in some ways, Copernicus was granted the distinction of being right, while at the same time being denounced as wrong. Biblical references to Psalm 93 verse 1, 96, 10, and 1 Chronicles 1630 include texts stating, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. In the same manner, Psalm 104, verse 5 says, The Lord has set the earth on its foundation, it can never be moved. And further, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 5 states, And the sun rises and sets and returns to its place. These scriptures and others were used by the Pope and a Roman Inquisition to suggest that Galileo was in fact a heretic for suggesting that science and evidence, truth for want of a better word, was giving us a new insight into the role the earth played in its relation to other heavenly bodies, including the sun. Back to the Wikipedia article. Galileo defended heliocentrism, and in his letter to the Grand Duchess Christina, argued that it was not contrary to biblical texts. He took the Augustinian position that poetry, songs, instructions, or historical statements in biblical texts need not always be interpreted literally. Galileo argued that the authors wrote from the perspective of the terrestrial world in which the sun does rise and set, and discussed a different kind of movement of the earth, not rotations. By 1615, Galileo's writings on heliocentrism had been submitted to the Roman Inquisition, and his efforts to interpret the Bible were seen as a violation of the Council of Trent. Now, in the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church tried to deal with what they would have described at the time and perhaps might still today— as the problem of Protestantism. Their biggest issue was people who were not Roman Catholic clergy reading the Bible and offering interpretations of it. I won't get to that topic in any detail here in this different drummer segment. It seems to me that that's a topic that should stand on its own for its own Inappropriate Conversations show. There are stories about the Catholic Church's response to people reading the Bible that, if you've never heard them, will probably shock, and perhaps even amuse you. Back to Wikipedia, though. Attacks on the idea of Copernicus had reached a head, and Galileo went to Rome to defend himself and Copernican ideas. In 1616, an inquisitorial commission unanimously declared heliocentrism to be, quote, foolish and absurd in philosophy, and formally heretical since it explicitly contradicts in many places the sense of holy scripture, end quote. Pope Paul V instructed Cardinal Bellarmine to deliver this finding to Galileo and to order him to abandon the Copernican opinions. On February 26, Galileo was called to the residence of that cardinal and ordered to abandon completely the opinion that the sun stands at the center of the world and the earth moves and henceforth not to hold, teach, or defend it in any way, whatever, either orally or in writing. In 1616, this was the Inquisition's injunction against Galileo. As it would play out, and I'm not going to go into the detail here, Galileo was found guilty of charges and was placed initially in a, in a basement sort of prison. A, I hate to use the word dungeon, it sounds inflammatory. And was later put on house arrest and lived the balance of his life that way. But there's a couple of interesting things about Galileo's story. He used that time, when he couldn't have done much else, to document maybe more completely than he otherwise would have if he'd been actively engaging in research, to put all of his ideas down in writing. And the writings that survive from that have lived long enough to create the extremely unusual moment in church history of future popes calling that pope's actions clearly mistaken. That while popes insist, and perhaps still do to this day insist, that they are incapable of error at least when it comes to Scripture. This was a moment where a pope did acknowledge that previous popes had not been incapable of error when it came to science, or, the way I would spin it, not incapable of error when it comes to truth. But here's my other point of view on this story. Scripture passages here that they refer to in this Wikipedia article that would have been referred to by the Inquisition in Rome Give us a sense of what it means to read in a rigid inerrancy into biblical texts. Compare this to the rigid inerrancy and the supremacy that is poured into texts from Leviticus and the uh, parts of the early part of the book of the letter of Romans, where people have decided that these passages are the truth and cannot be questioned and anybody who questions them is, quote unquote, not a Christian. If I have my way, we're going to get to this topic next in the next Inappropriate Conversation show. But I would just point out for now that all of these flowery passages, these the lyrics, for want of a better word, in the Psalms, talking about the earth's position as being fixed and sure and firmly established, well, maybe it just didn't turn out later to be that God meant that the earth never moves, that something perhaps more philosophical was being expressed about the value of people, the value of the planet, and God's relationship with people that view him as their creator and themselves as the creation. To go back to what Christian Pyatt said about Galileo in his, in his article, as a general rule, important new knowledge presents a compelling opportunity for new thought. Now, unfortunately, Galileo would be dead for a almost a hundred years before the new thought that he was inspiring with the new knowledge he was presenting would begin to shift the view that it was only only going to be so much longer, maybe 250 years longer that the church could continue to act as if the evidence didn't clearly show that the earth was revolving in a pattern around the sun. Or might I suggest that Galileo's enemies are still alive and well, and speaking on behalf of Christianity. Maybe not with the gall to suggest that they're speaking truth to power, but more to say that their interpretation of Scripture is correct and anybody else who interprets Scripture differently is some sort of heretic. When Jesus taught us that the truth would set us free, and that we were called to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and souls and strengths and minds, the thoughts of Galileo, in other words, matter and matter a lot, including on the topic of speaking truth to power. I had some other personal stories that I'd considered telling here, and I I will just save them for another day. I have had moments, for example, of not speaking truth to power myself, I had a situation where my father had died, and I had a boss at the time who told me that I should be fired for having the audacity to take time off work to go to his funeral. That probably merited a response, but for whatever reason, I consider the reason to be my relationship with the Holy Spirit and my trust in God, I chose not to say anything. It wasn't that I was lazy or even fearful. I just decided, based on my prayer life and what I felt the Holy Spirit was leading me to do, that this was not a battle I needed to pick. That if there was a battle to be fought here, others would fight it for me. And that's what happened. Rather than getting into a personal, perhaps emotionally tempestuous argument with my boss's boss, I said nothing. I was the bigger man, I suppose, the way you traditionally see it worded. And when he had the audacity, that same vice president, to say the same kind of thing in the store across town, I didn't have to speak up. The cashiers in that store, who barely knew me, who'd never worked for me a day in their lives, but maybe not even knew who I was, spoke up for me. They took the risk to speak truth to power, meaning I didn't have to. Other people can, from time to time, speak truth to power on your behalf. If the concept of ally in the context of gay rights, means anything at all. It perhaps means that those people who aren't part of the LGBTQ community directly, in terms of who they are personally and genuinely, may have an opportunity themselves to speak truth to power to other people who are heterosexual, as having a heterosexual-to-heterosexual conversation about the assumptions and mistakes that are too often made and most often made from within the church. That's a kind of speaking truth to power that I may come to in the very next Inappropriate Conversation. In the meantime, if you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Show notes are enabled at www.inappropriateconversations.org, where I print the notes, comments can be made. Inappropriate Conversations can also be found on Stitcher Smart Radio, Stitcher is a good way to listen to podcasts on the go. And there's another site that's recently come up called poddirectory.com. Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth kind of share the page there, just like they share the feed at my website and also on Stitcher. Thanks for listening.